Welcome to Like a Glove, the startup podcast about product market fit. I'm your host, Pat East, and also the executive director at The Mill. In today's episode, I have with me co-founder and CEO of Civic Champs, Gung Wong. Welcome. Thanks, Pat. It's great to be on. Awesome. Thanks for being here. Full disclosure, I have just made my second investment in Civic Champs. My wife and I did just this week. So we're really high on Civic Champs and Gung in particular. And so I wanted to have him on the podcast to talk about product market fit, obviously, but specifically what he's doing with Civic Champs. We'll also go into his previous two companies to talk about product market fit there and how that went. That sounds great, and super excited to have you and Jamie keeping supporting us. Yeah, we're, we're happy to. So let's start off with, what does Civic Champs do? Yeah, so Civic Champ helps nonprofits, and we give back capacity to nonprofits by automating their volunteer management process, and then we help them increase funding by converting those volunteers to donors. And so why is increasing their volunteer capacity important? I mean, I assume it is. Sure. <laughs> right. But, but yeah, what are the reasons behind that? So I think at the most basic level, you know, you're talking about professionals who have gifted skills in terms of managing events or engaging volunteers. And a lot of their time is actually taken up doing fairly clerical work. And so if we can give them back that capacity, they can do more good in the community. And so I think that's sort of first and foremost on why that's the most important piece. And so why are they doing so much clerical work around volunteer management? Is that the right term? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Great question. Actually, that's something that we asked ourselves on why does the sort of industry work the way it does today? I think a, a big part of it is just that as an industry, nonprofits are more underserved by our tech community. There's not as much overlap in terms of technical talent and the folks that tend to be interested in nonprofit work. And so as an industry, it just hasn't had as much attention. A lot of the sort of work that we're talking about is, you know, if you think about when you show up, you have a paper sign-in form, right? And then someone else then has to manually type that information up, put it into some sort of database. And that just takes a lot of, you know, double work, if you will. You would never imagine a consumer-facing company like let's say Starbucks doing a paper form for its customer loyalty programs, right? That just, that would seem ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's sort of how it works today. And everyone sort of has, you know, felt that experience. And so really the nonprofit world, because of lack of tech talent in it and focus on it, really just needs to catch up to more consumer facing apps that are already using technology to to help run their businesses. Right, right. Got it, got it. Tell me, um, what's your definition of product market fit? Everybody's definition is slightly different. That's part of the reason why we're doing the podcast is to educate the market. What's your what's your definition of product market fit? So for me, the definition is having a product that the market's willing to pay for at a volume and price point that can keep your company growing and sustainable. Right, that's sort of for me product market fit. And so, what's sustainable for you is that cash flow break even? Is that hey this company is going to last forever and ever is this keeps growing uh for for me cash flow break even is how i think about it and so at what point do you think you'll have product market fit you know the way you're defining it, if your cash flow break even that is a lagging indicator right mm-hmm. and so you could potentially have product market fit before them but you sure. aren't going to know it yeah. how far away do you think you are from it then we, we have a ways to go for the general market. I think we're getting much closer for subsets of uh, the community. So in particular, two come to mind. Um, we've had uh, really positive and surprising traction with private schools. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they they actually use Civic Champs to 
manage their parental mandatory volunteering programs. So oh, cool. parents have to volunteer at these schools. Otherwise, they have to pay a fee of two to three hundred dollars a year uh, mm-hmm. to make up for it. And so there's a lot of incentive for the parents to do it. And then the school, um, it's easier for them to manage that program. And then the other bucket of nonprofits that seem like, you know, it's closer to product market fit are, are folks like a Habitat for Humanity. Their characteristics are, you know, they have a lot of volunteers that they report on that volunteering number and the hours. It's really important for them in terms of their messaging and fundraising. And it's a very frequent event for them, right? So they have multiple builds typically throughout the week. So this is sort of a recurring pain point and they have the budget to pay, you know, a decent amount. So those are two buckets that, you know, we are the closest to, I would say. And then the broader market, I think, will take a little bit longer. So in both of those cases, you've got a group of volunteers. You've got a lot of people that you need to manage. In the first case, there's a a really compelling reason for the private school to use civic champs because they have to manage all of these people. The volunteerism is mandatory in that Mm -hmm. case. It's compulsory. In the second case with Habitat, it's recurring. And so the Mm -hmm. problem always comes up. Right. And Um, it it is a core part of their business model, right? They couldn't build these houses without the volunteers. how they save on costs. For their donors, they can just talk about how it amplifies the donation, right? So you give me X amount, and all you need to give me is the either the land or just the materials, and the house almost comes for free, so to speak, mm-hmm. with, with in terms of labor. So is that kind of the case with the private schools where it's almost built into their model of, okay, this is just part of our culture, this is how we operate, we're going to use volunteers to run whatever programs, and so is that really the types of customers you need where the volunteer is is really truly baked in. Yeah, I think those those tend to be the best fit for us. There's other folks that we serve, obviously, but those seem like right now they're the best fit. What other markets could you potentially go into where that volunteerism is really baked in? Like we do volunteerism at Hannapin, mm-hmm. my other company. It's a digital marketing agency. We'll do vol- volunteerism on Martin Luther King Day and throughout the year with volunteer yep. time off, but it's not it's not truly baked into our culture. It's not a recurring pain point. So I don't we could be a client. Right. We aren't yet. (laughs) What other industries could you go into where it's really baked in? So politics, a lot of folks have talked to us about that. They need a little bit of a different toolkit, if you will. But that's certainly baked in, whether that's canvassing, phone banks, et cetera. You rely on your volunteers. You There's just no way to sure. s- fully staff that, so to speak. The other folks, Habitat's an example, but you have your you know food banks. You have just anything that has a lot of labor involved in the, in the model itself. That's volunteering-based. It tends to be a good... Great. Tell me, um, when you first started working on the idea for Civic Champs, what were the first steps you took to vet out the idea to make sure that it was viable? So Civic Champs has already pivoted <laughs> once. So we, we did pretty early pivot. So our original idea was actually to be the uh, Pokemon Go for volunteering with the idea that there's no easy way for people to volunteer today in sort of small time chunks, right? So whether that is, you know, five minutes here, five minutes there, you can play video games, right, on your phone in, in small increments, but you can't do that in terms of doing good. And so that was the original idea. And we were going to have people take, let's say, f- pictures of, 
fire hydrants and street lights and then create these digitized maps for cities, et cetera, as, as different campaigns that they could work on. The pivot happened essentially when we started talking with different agencies and nonprofits. And what we realized is that they just have much more fundamental pain points that are you know more pressing for them that we can help address, especially as we started thinking about how do we apply some of those interesting game mechanics and, and technology to solving more mundane topics like tracking your volunteer hours or scheduling them and engaging your volunteers on an ongoing basis. So that's really what we ended up doing. But the original idea and how we got there was really through a process of talking to prospective customers. So how many, it's interesting that you already had a pivot really right at the very beginning from your original idea. How many customers did you talk to before you realized, or potential customers, before you figured out, okay, we need to change the idea a bit? So I think we probably at that point talked to 30 or so consumers, so potential volunteers across different ages. We did some surveys, and then we talked to, I would say, 15 to 20 organizations around that time before we pivoted. So I think, you know, that was like five city departments, Visit Bloomington. There was a number of nonprofits that we get engaged with. And so once you start hearing sort of consistent things, and you tend to do tend to hear that starting in sort of interview 10 or you know, mm-hmm. 12, right? Okay. So you start to pick up on recurring themes in 10 or 12, or at least to be able to identify them, right? They're right. probably saying some of those things right. uh, through one through 11. Yeah. But you start to hear them truly at 10 or 12. So let's take one step back. So when you had the idea for Civic Champs, it was a gamification mm-hmm. for consumers, and now it's more volunteer management for the organizations. Right. How did you come up with the original idea to do Pokemon Go for, for <laughs> volunteerism? So the inspiration was I was helping create the CSR program for my last company, and mm-hmm. so that's Corporate Social Responsibility, and we were thinking about doing a day of service uh, within the community, so thinking about you know what kind of nonprofits do we partner with, what makes a good fit, and part of the pain point of that was, oh, you know, everyone has to take a half day off of work, right? That's a lot of, that's actually a decent amount of commitment from a company to say my whole team, that's a lot of money that I'm not being productive with. And then that just triggered my own thoughts on my personal sort of volunteering and thinking, oh, you know, I wish I would do more. And why do I not do more? Part of it is actually, well, I have two kids now and it's harder for me to take a whole Sunday off to go and volunteer, right? And so, you know, what if there was a way to make make this fun and easy and casual. I happened to be playing Pokemon, Pokemon Go, at the, Go at the time. At the time. <laughs> <laughs> so Pokemon Go was kind of big. At, well, it still is big, yeah. but then it was very much in the zeitgeist. And, yep. and so that, that led to some inspiration for Civic Champs. That's yeah. cool. I didn't realize that. Tell me about when you were doing your initial customer interviews, you talked to a lot of folks and started picking up on themes between interview 10 and 12. How do you know you interviewed the right folks and you didn't bias your sample somehow? I can't say that we knew that we had the right folks. We tried. And so when I talked about talking to consumers, we tried to have a wide spectrum of folks that we talked to by age, by location. Similar with the nonprofits, right? We, we said, hey, let's talk to different types of nonprofits and see what their reactions are. That said, it's hard that early to say, I'm not going to have any bias. I think for me, the most important thing was, is what I'm hearing, does that make logical sense? Is it consistent enough that I have enough belief to start to go down this path? And then is the pain point strong enough for me to believe that they are actually going to pay for this? So there were really two big things that I heard in there. One was that the pain point was big enough and compelling enough that you felt, okay, let's explore this some more. But in general, you started to hear, it it was logical enough to you, the conversations you heard that, 
okay, this isn't necessarily 100% the absolute idea that we're going to execute, and this is the vision of the company, but mm-hmm. at least this is good enough to start with, and then you could figure out things from there. Yeah, it was good enough to do our <laughs> initial hypothesis. A company launches, and I think folks have talked about it as your initial hypotheses on what would work, and then you, you go out and test it. Right, so a startup is an organization that's trying to find the business model, right? Yeah. And so you very much treat it kind of that initial proposition right. like that. Right. You're trying right. to figure it out. Yeah, your search for product market fit. You, yeah. don't, you don't have it right away. Awesome. So, you know, earlier you mentioned that you feel like you have product market fit maybe with a couple of segments, private schools and in these organizations where there's recurring mm-hmm. volunteers mm-hmm. Or, or big volunteer groups. How far along for the rest of the market? You said it's probably going to take a little bit longer. How far along do you think you are from figuring out product market fit from there? Or do you feel like you're there? It's just going to take time to market to them and acquire customers. If you think about if this core group was a small circle, right, and then we have sort of concentric rings around it in terms of different similar types of folks, I think we're pretty close in a number of other groups. So, for example, we actually had a new partnership with the National Mentoring Partnership. and This is mentoring.org? Yeah, mentoring.org, yep. And so that could be a really great fit for us as well as we launch in, in the next month or so, where we, instead of just tracking volunteer hours, we actually track the engagement between the mentors and mentees. Mm -hmm. So that seems like a very close one too. And now each time we get to better fit, there's there's always this also this sense that we can do even better, right? Mm -hmm. The way I see it is that even in the next three months or so, I think that uh, that sort of circle of folks that we can serve who would, you know, really love the product is going to be actually quite sizable. And so what makes you think that in the next three months that that circle gets that much bigger? Is it just kind of a gut feeling or there are there things that your customers are saying to you or prospects saying to you that make you feel that way? For example, when we talked about the habitats of the world, for a long time we didn't have a scheduling tool, right? We just tracked hours. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, today we actually launched our new scheduling tool so you can easily sign up for something. And then the sort of the magic that happens is that if you're signed up for something and you show up on site and you're using the Civic Champs app, it'll automatically check you in using sort of geolocation information. And those are features that we actually had signed LOIs for to say, hey, you know, I, I would love to use Civic Champs, but you really really need a scheduling tool. And so we had, again, a number of conversations that pointed us in that direction. And so that's part of what gives me confidence is having these conversations that say, okay, if we build these three or four features, we know that the the sort of the circle gets larger because these are things that people said they're willing to buy. Some of them have even signed LOIs around it. That's, I think, the big thing that gives me confidence. And so in those instances, it wasn't just prospects saying, hey, if you build this product or, or feature, will sign. It was them signing an LOI, a letter of agreement. Can Mm -hmm. you go into the mechanics of what an LOI is? How is it different from signing an actual contract and why it's important in these cases? So LOIs are non-binding. It's not an actual, you know, commitment, so to speak, but it does. It's psychologically, I think mentally, though, it gets an organization to be that much closer to actually signing a contract, right? They've, in theory, agreed to pay you X amount of dollars, right? So you usually have a price point on there and you're very explicit on sort of the missing things or elements that you need to do to get them um, over the um, over the hurdle, so to speak. And it's important because from a fundraising standpoint, you can also show investors that A, you're 
being smart about your product roadmap by actually finding things that people are willing to pay for, and B, if your revenues aren't as high as you'd like them to be, or maybe even if they are, you can show that there's this other tranche that's just you know waiting out there for you. So it does show potential investors kind of what the pipeline looks like, but mm-hmm. it's more of a true and real pipeline of somebody has quite literally signed a piece of paper, mm-hmm. and it's non-binding, which means that if they don't want to go forward with it, they don't have to, right? right? But it is kind of a psychological hurdle that they have to get over. Mm-hmm. And is were your LOIs, did you do them yourselves or did you have an attorney write them? We, I think we just did those ourselves. We, you know, there's lots of great templates out there online. I think YC puts out a number of uh, great templates, you know, for investment or even for uh, SaaS contracts, right? So super easy to do. Yeah. I imagine the other part about an LOI isn't just the psychological factor of signing your name and saying, okay, yes, I commit at least in concept to paying you money once you have these, but it kind of forces a conversation internally at the prospect of, okay, are we really going to move forward? with this versus just a one-on-one conversation that maybe somebody can have independent of needing to talk to anybody there. Yeah, and and most of the organizations I'm talking about is usually the executive director who's signing that LOI and they're able to make that decision. So this is your third company, right? So tell me about the the two previous companies. What were the two companies' names and and what did they do just to start off with? Great. So my first startup, its name was Rent Jungle. We were the apartment search engine or Google for apartment search. And then the second company's name was Community Elf. It's recently been rebranded as Cosmito, but it was a social media management agency. And so we focused on the day-to-day doing of social media, right? Posting on Facebook, Twitter, et cetera. Gotcha. And so Rent Jungle was first, then Community Elf, right? Right. Okay. So let's talk about Rent Jungle first. Do you feel like, I mean, you ended up selling both companies, right? Mm -hmm. And so for Rent Jungle, did you feel like you had product market fit at that point once you sold? Yeah, well, I mean, most people aren't going to buy you if you don't have product market Right, fit. sure. <laughs> so Rent Jungle is interesting. I think even today, I feel like there's still elements that can be done better. What Rent Jungle did a really great job of was the long tail search, right? So the thesis was that because we had the greatest number of rental listings and the sort of the most data behind it, if someone was searching not just for, let's say, apartments in New York as a sort of generic search, but saying, I want a a three-bedroom apartment in New York with a you know high-rise view of the Hudson and dryers and washers included, right? And that's what they typed into Google. That's where that Rent is Jungle. an amazing long tail yeah, search. Yeah, right. <laughs> but you'd be surprised, like people, you know, as people got better and better using Google, they tend to do longer and longer tail searches because they know the more specific they are, then the better the result is going to be for them. And so that's what Rent Jungle really excelled, and most of our traffic really was driven to us by sort of organic search engines. And how did you figure out that kind of this long tail and utilizing Google was what your customers really wanted and needed? I don't think that was the original thesis, right? I think the original thesis was that if you had the greatest number of listings for a user, that in of itself is very valuable, right? I like having the ability to see the full market. I think for certain users, I think that's true, right? To say, hey, I don't have to go to these other websites. The same reason you use Kayak for travel 
novel, right, etc. I think that thesis was less strong than sort of what ended up happening, which is like we specialize in, in, in sort of this longer tale. Gotcha. In the case of Civic Champs, you started off with one idea, pivoted over to something else. In the case of Rent Jungle, started off with one idea and really kind of kept that same idea and it was just a slight pivot, right? Yeah, or, um, or the the niche of users that were really excited about us was not perhaps what we first envisioned or it was one of the groups that we envisioned, but they were the ones that sort of were our champions. So it was the same market, in other words, whereas Civic Champs is a completely different market, right? It's not, con- you're not, your customers aren't consumers, your customers are the nonprofits. Correct. In Rent Jungle, customers are still the same. It was a subset of those. And so you figured that out probably just via Google Analytics. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we had sort of flat growth and then just, it felt like out of nowhere, you know, maybe four or five months in, we saw just this, you know, 10, 20% week over week growth for three months, right? It was just ridiculous, you know, this, um, uh, the, you know, something. The hockey stick. <laughs> yeah, the hockey stick yep. happened. What you're looking for. And you're just like, what? I don't understand why this <laughs> Let's do more of that. that. Right, whatever this is, <laughs> let's do more. So tell me about Community Elf. It's now rebranded as Cosmito. Mm-hmm. That was a social media management agency posting status updates, Twitter and Facebook mm-hmm. status mm-hmm. updates. So you sold that one. So presumably you feel like you had product market fit there. Right? Yeah, it was a service company, right? Mm-hmm. So even from the get-go, from a gross margin standpoint, it was always sort of quote-unquote profitable. And it was the only question is, could we scale to get enough customers per sort of rep to sort of make it profitable as, a, as an enterprise. And this was, you know, 10 years ago. And so posting on social media was very novel. I think the real challenge was that it was actually relatively easy to sign up new customers because everyone sort of needed this. Um, they didn't know how to do it themselves. They didn't know how to do it help. themselves and they needed help. So we ended up signing a lot of folks pretty quickly. I think the challenge was really on the retention side because a lot of folks had no idea why they wanted social media, right? <laughs> You had car dealerships. Everybody's talking about it, but what do I need to keep doing it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's no thesis behind why they wanted posting. And we happened to be a great service that made it cheap. But then what we needed to do was really think about for each of these sub-markets, what drives sort of ongoing value so that we can keep them. So that became sort of the main challenge over the long run. And so in both of these cases, Written Jungle and Community Elf, now Cosmeta, you figured out kind of what the sub-market was. You started off with one market and figured out there's a sub-market in there that really likes your service. And so you honed in on those. Yep. For Community Elf, how did you figure out what those sub-markets were, just conversations with customers? I feel like this is the same, and maybe there's a better approach, but for us, it's always been sort of the scattershot <laughs> approach, right? So we started with apartments, because that's the industry we knew. And then we said, oh, what looks like an apartment? Well, car dealerships and any sort of the classified site, restaurants, etc. And so we went there, they wanted to sign up, and then we said, oh, what else could we do? And so we started doing brands and white labeling for agencies, and actually, in in the long run, that was a big part of our business was actually the white labeling service for other agencies. Because let's say a large agency often has great work in terms of graphics and messaging and design, but is pretty expensive when it comes to doing your ongoing maintenance. What we could do is really operationalize that and say, give me the messaging, give me the strategy, and I'll do all the work for you. Oh, very cool. So that was kind of a pivot as well, right? It wasn't just, hey, let's get you started doing social media 10 years ago 
which was extraordinarily novel. Yeah. It's, hey, let's figure out how to operationalize this for you so we retain you as a customer. Right, right. Tell me, in addition to being CEO of Civic Champs, you're also an EIR, Entrepreneur in Residence, at Purdue at Westgate and Kelly Business School. And so in your roles at those two institutions, what do you see as the biggest product market fit mistake that startups usually make? Ooh, that's a uh, that's a tough one. I think the biggest thing I see, so at times you'll see sort of the solutions looking for a market and that can be tough, right? I think the biggest thing I still see is not launching quick enough and just getting to market and getting that early feedback. And really that's usually held back by this wish for more technology, right? Or a better solution or this ideal solution as opposed to, you know, I think this is not super novel, but really getting out there, getting initial feedback on sort of a a true MVP that can prove different parts of your thesis, if you will, right? So, you know, will my customers do X? Oh, they will. Well, you know, the other part of my model requires this, you know, will they do, you know, this other thing? And just getting out there and getting that real feedback early on without getting bogged down. I think the other thing that I see once in a while is people that are close to product market fit or getting pretty close, but decide to pivot because they want to chase something a little sexier because a lot of the companies because we're based in Bloomington are are led I think by you know young students they sometimes go for that bigger market that's really you know that they think they can build the you know multi-billion dollar company in when their original idea was more niche but potentially a better way to start right so why do you think they go after these bigger markets because who wouldn't want to go after a bigger market? So why is that necessarily a bad thing? It's not necessarily a bad thing. I think your model, your expectations, your funding are very different, right? So I'm hesitant on giving specific examples. <laughs> <laughs> We're a small community. Uh, small I community. But I think, and this is not my advice, right? So if you think about, I think maybe it was Peter Thiel saying, hey, what you really want is a small group of fanatical users that you really, you can focus in on and build a product for them first and then grow from that, right? Whereas I think I had this issue probably too, which sometimes that doesn't seem as sexy. And you say, no, well, I, I you know, that's that's too small of a market. And and, and you might getting some feedback from, from even investors that say, oh, that's too small of a market. But really, as long as I think you have the vision of how to get to that big market, that's totally fine and you don't have to go after everyone at the same time so some of that feedback on it not being a big enough market might be from investors who obviously want to return on their money they're Mm -hmm. doing it for investing for fiduciary reasons but just because they want a big market to finish with doesn't necessarily they want a big market to start with but maybe that's some of the things that startups think they're hearing is hey we need to start off with a a much bigger market is that fair yeah 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 One of the things I heard in an earlier answer was about folks wanting to wait until there's better tech to be able to get that customer feedback. Would you recommend that folks go out and get feedback without any tech? Yeah, I think so. I think for most companies, almost all companies actually, you can get feedback without any technology at all, right? The classic example is is sort of building the vaporware, the, essentially mm-hmm. just the website that says, "Here's all the stuff I do." Here's what we do. You right. know, click click to sign up today, right? And and put in your credit card, and then you say the, "Oh, I'm sorry, I just kidding. We're we're not quite launched yet." We've got six weeks to launch, or yeah, something, right? Or whatever yeah. it is, but you're first on our list, right? That's sort of the classic example. But there's other things you can do, right? So think about 
about Rent the Runway as another example where they had a trunk show for their very first sort of proof of concept. Then they went to catalogs, right? Then they went to, you know, a website, but all the back end logistic was, you know, manual. Done by hand. Done by hand. Mm-hmm. So you can see that progression to say, okay, my Envision is this magical, you know, platform where, you know, dresses come to you on delivery for your big event and all the logistics is taken care of and you can ship back in a box, etc. But what I'm starting with is just a trunk show where I literally bring physical dresses to a location and women come and they can touch it and try it out. And, and that's where I'm starting, right? And so in that particular case, kind of what I'm hearing is there's software, like maybe a marketing website that helps folks figure out, hey, this is a legit thing. But on the back end, it's very much manual. So it's true software as a service. You're figuring out the service portion mm-hmm. to start with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Very cool. All right. I think that does it for this episode of Like a Glove. Gung, can you uh, give us some contact info of where to reach you? You can go to our website. It's civicchamps.com. And there's a sort of a contact form there. Or you can reach me directly on my email, gung, G-E-N-G, at civicchamps.com. All right. Thanks a lot, Gung. I appreciate it. Thank you. Like a Glove is a production of The Mill, a co-working and business incubator space in Bloomington, Indiana. Our mission is to launch and accelerate high-potential companies, and our vision is to become the center of co-working and entrepreneurship in Indiana. You can learn more about The Mill at dimensionmill.org. Thanks for listening, and be sure to check back every other Monday for new episodes.